Okay, you there, Mazi? Yes, yeah. Okay, is Mazi okay? Or sh I'm going to call you Maziar in the interview. Maziar, yeah. Maziar is better, okay. Yeah. Mazi's just too informal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was little, my family right. used to call me Mazi, yeah. But now you're a, you're a serious journalist, I've filmmaker. Up. I've you, grown up. So, you've been in yeah. prison. You don't call someone who's been in prison Mazi. My actually my interrogator used to call me Mazi just to tease me. Oh, yeah. that's what my mother called me. So yeah. Your interrogator used to call you Mazi like a like a little boy's name kind of? Yeah, because you know, my mother call, used to call me Mazi and he was just making fun of that, you know, he wanted to be I mean, on one hand, I think he wanted to be friendly, but at the same time, you know, when you torture someone, you cannot be really friends with them. So <laughs> it was humiliating and friendly at the same time. Yeah. Right. That's a great line. When you torture someone, you can't really be friends with them. You might want to bond, you know. You may want to bond, but it will be very difficult to bond. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. So, I am speaking with Maziar Bahari, the infamous Iranian-Canadian journalist, filmmaker, and human rights activist. Uh, his uh, resume is too long to read, but a couple of key things is he was a reporter for Newsweek from 1998 to 2011. He was incarcerated by the Iranian government from June 2009 to October 20th, 2009. We were just chatting about that. And he's written a New York Times bestseller, uh, Then They Came For Me, his memoir, um, and that memoir was the basis for the uh, terrific film by John Stewart entitled Rosewater. And other things you may not know about Maziar is he's behind the Education is Not a Crime campaign, uh, which has been going on for some time in various iterations that's bringing attention to the denial of education uh, of the Baha'is in Iran. Uh, he directed and was behind the documentary To Light a Candle, which is about that same subject and was about the underground universities in Iran um, that came to life. And he's got a new project that we're going to dive into as well. But let's um, start off by saying uh, you're not a Baha'i, Maziar. Um, I made you an honorary Baha'i last year when we had a big event in LA. But oh, yeah. um, you've been spearheading these initiatives. And I'd love to just hear from you about what is your religious background or your secular background and your beliefs? And why has this situation of the Baha'is in Iran become so important to you personally? Well, I do not have a religious background per se. Uh, my parents were members of Iran's Communist Party. Uh, they met actually in Iran's Communist Party in 1950. They married, and they kind of didn't have a religion, but I, I 
say kind of didn't have religion because when you grow up in a religious country and when you grow up in a traditional country, even if you're a communist, even if you're an atheist, that becomes your religion. So for my father, Lenin was like his prophet Muhammad. Ah. Yeah. And, you know, it's not something that's particular to Iran because uh, I've been to some houses in Italy where they have the picture of the Pope and the picture of the leader of the Communist Party at the same time. So uh, my parents had a religion, which was communism. I did not have a religion. And of course, uh, when I was growing up, I was born in 1967. So when I was uh, 11, the Iranian revolution happened and it was a religious revolution, but communists took part in it. And, you know, in Iran, religious and nationalism are mixed together. And then we were communist. And so it was all mixed. Uh, So I, I grew up in a secular yet religious family so they were religiously anti-religion in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> religiously anti-religious so you grew up thinking that uh religion was the opiate of the masses exactly that without was pretty well drilled into you without understanding what that means because I think many people who are religious around the world, they just don't know uh, the meaning behind most of the things that they believe in. And, That's but very they, true. They believe in them. So, and it's true about the communists as well. So I think uh, the reason that my father became a communist in the late 1940s was not very different from uh, why many people convert to different religions these days. Yeah, that's true. Um, but communism is like a religion. There is a, a number of aspects of it that are very religious. I did a thesis on that in undergrad about uh, Karl Marx and something about like messianic nature of his writings or something like that. I'm, I can't remember. I was a lot smarter back then. But... Yeah. It's a holistic system that explains the world and the universe. Um, and there's um, miracles that are promised if you follow through. And uh, what are some other parallels between communism and yeah, religion? Sure. The thing is that, I mean, Marxism in itself maybe is not uh, very religious-like. But I think when you talk about Leninism, then it's Stalinism or Maoism. And, you know, the way that the people, uh, North Korean uh, Democratic Republic, they believe in the greatness of their leader. That is really uh, religion. And even uh, they remind you of uh, religion even pre-Renaissance time in Europe that they believe in, as you said, miracles and they believe in the certain absolutism about religion. So... Yeah, so I think uh, in some uh, aspects in Iran, the kind of uh, communism that my father's generation believed in, they, and they they grew up uh, during the time that Stalin was the leader of the Communist Party in Soviet Union. So hmm. they really believed in the absolute power of the Communist Party, and they believed in the supreme leadership of the leader. 
of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union as the big brother. As and they they said that you know they were not shy about saying that we look at the Communist Party of Soviet Union as big brother. But anyways, I don't think that your uh, audience would like to hear more about communism. Uh, I guess I, I do have another question about this topic. I want to dive in. Is there some similarities in Iran? Well. I guess with the Ayatollah, is there a similarity between the Ayatollah and and Stalin? And also, um, uh, I don't want to get all political necessarily, but I'm wondering if there's Marxist ideas that's kind of seeped into uh, kind of Iranian uh, governance. Uh, I don't think that it's really Marxist ideas because I believe that Marx asks many right questions. And I think many people... Uh, do not understand the questions that Marx is asking, and they have wrong answers to those right questions. Mm -hmm. So, but I believe that all tyrants, whether uh, you know you're talking about Hitler or Stalin or Ayatollah Khomeini or Kim Jong Il and uh, Hafez al Assad, Bashar al Assad. They all, uh, Saddam Hussein, they all share certain uh, characteristics. And I think it's the fact that they try to dehumanize people in order to be empowered. They provide very simple uh, solutions, very black and white uh, solutions to very complicated situations. This is uh, something that uh, we see in uh, many tyrants. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, unfortunately, these days, it is becoming a trend in many places around the world. When you look at the way that, for example, Brexiters, people mm -hmm. like Michael Farage in the UK where I live, uh, gave an answer, gave fabricated answers, gave lies uh, to, you know, lied about the solutions that they provided to very complicated uh, questions about identity, about economy, about immigration in the UK, or what Viktor Orban is doing in uh, Hungary, and what Marie Le Pen is doing in France, and, you know, of course, in this country, some people have done that as well. So I think this is a very uh, tyrannical view of the world and all the tyrants. Well, I, I love the comparison between tyranny and simplistic answers to things I because... Think, yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that you can have a complicated tyranny because I think <laughs> tyranny in itself means... You're like a quote machine. You're like a quote machine. I don't think you can have a complicated tyranny. That's fantastic. No, it's true because you never, as soon as you ask questions, things become complicated. Yeah. And at the same time, they are becoming more democratic. Tyranny right. means simplistic answers. Yeah. And yeah. looking at the world in black and white, that the Aryans are the supreme race that the Jews are degenerate and dangerous. That, that America is the evil empire. That America is the great Satan, that Iran is the 
motherland of Islam that, you know, that all Mexicans are rapists and yeah. murderers. And, yeah, there's you – know, yeah, there, so. there was a great uh, piece in the New York Times uh, that had people that really thought that immigration should be shut down, uh, especially from Mexico, and they espoused a lot of really racist ideas. And when they were uh, shown pictures of families that were being deported and told about the families and about yeah. how this kid was in school and this girl had a job and this dad tried to provide for his family. As soon as they were showed specifics, they, they all kind of responded by saying, oh, well, not that family. We don't want to deport them. They're good people. We're just talking about the bad people. So as soon as you kind of dig into something and start to, and start to get more human and more complicated than uh, you know, your heart and your mind hopefully starts to open up. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, when you uh, dehumanize people, the first thing uh, to do is to uh, deprive them from any kind of identity. So when you are demonizing Mexicans or if you are demonizing Jews or Muslims, you cannot say that, you know, these people are the same as us. They have families. They love their families. They have complicated relationship with their husbands and wives and brothers and sisters. You just say they're evil. And yeah. people, because of different reasons, because of economic reasons, because of uh, insecurity in terms of their identity, in terms of their culture, whatever reason, when they do not have knowledge of that other, they believe you. But as soon as there is a little bit of knowledge, there is that crack in the wall yeah. and, you know, people can see differently. And I think our job as people in the media, as people, as journalists, as artists, is to ask these questions and create these cracks in these walls. And if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it, as uh, was it Montoya said that. And um, the uh, anytime a uh, a race or a country is demonized, there should be alarms that go off. Exactly, and I think as Marx said, uh, you know, history repeats itself first as tragedy, second time as farce. So why uh, is the situation of the Baha'is in Iran so important to you personally? If you grew up uh, a Marxist in Iran, you're a, you're a journalist living in Canada and England and the United States. Um, the plight of the Baha'is uh, really seemed to resonate with you. You have devoted so much of your time and energy, focus, your, 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 your money, your reputation on telling the story of the Baha'is. You see, when my father, when my father's generation, they became communist, it was for, it was because they wanted to create a better Iran. So they had, they thought that communism was the answer. For me, the situation of the Baha'is in Iran is emblematic uh, of other problems in Iran. And I think if we can solve the situation of Baha'i citizens in Iran, we can solve many situations in the country. And we have seen since the 1979 Islamic Revolution, whenever 
there is a bit of reform there whenever there is a bit of respect for human rights and citizen rights in Iran, we see that the situation of the Baha'is improve and vice versa. Whenever the government, whenever the officials uh, improve the situation of the Baha'is or tolerate the Baha'is in Iran, you see the rights of other citizens in the country is improved as well. And yeah. So the Baha'is are kind of the barometer for Iran, for exactly. human yeah. rights abuses and injustices in Iran. They're, they're the litmus test. They're the little thermometer going up and down. Exactly. The Baha'is are the barometer of what is going on in Iran. And, you know, as you grow older, and especially when you experience prison and when you experience solitary confinement, one of the first things that you become conscious of is time and energy and the fact that you have a very, you have very limited time in this world and you have very limited energy. So you have to spend your time and energy on things that are effective. So whereas maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, I would have uh, devoted my time to 10 or 15 different subjects. I am doing it, I'm, I'm dedicating my time and energy on maybe three or four subjects. And Baha'is, I think, uh, one of the reasons I'm dedicating so much time and energy to the Baha'i situation is because I think the more we can improve the situation of the Baha'i, the more we can raise awareness about the situation of the uh, Baha'is in Iran, the more effective we can become globally as well in Iran and improve the situation of all Iranians and people in different parts of the world. Have you gotten to know many Baha'is in Iran? Uh, yes, actually, yes. Since, uh, I mean, I grew up uh, in Iran. I left Iran when I was 18, so originally, and then I went back to Iran again when I was 29. But uh, I when I was growing up, I knew many Baha'is, but especially since I've been involved in the Education is Not a Crime campaign since 2013, I've gotten to know many Baha'is all around the world, from Australia to South Africa to India to England to the US and Canada, Brazil. And yeah, and I really admire Baha'is for their resilience, for their uh, love of knowledge, for love of education, and for dedication to honesty, which I think it's something that's really necessary for Iran, because I think uh, one of the consequences of a tyrannical regime is that people become... Uh, two-faced and people become uh, it's schizophrenic in a way especially in a country that's it's that's uh, it, it has a religious uh, dictatorship because mm -hmm. people have to behave one way inside the house and they have to behave another way outside of the house mm. and that's result uh, that results in this kind of uh, dichotomy between the public and the private. And That's, um, I, I've, I've read a lot of Eastern European stuff, um, you know, Vaclav Havel or Bogolkov and 
Kundera, and there always seems to be that when they, under a repressive regime, you have to constantly balance your external self and your internal self, and they always at, at conflict. Exactly, but uh, at least uh, you know in uh, Eastern Europe there was some social freedom. People could go to discos, uh, boys and girls could mingle publicly. Boys mm -hmm. and girls could be together publicly. But in Iran, when I was growing up, you know, they would the vigilantes would attack our schools and uh, shaved our heads <laughs> and you know attack parties even in private houses. So it was a uh, wait. Now they would do that because you were communists or because you were mingling. No, because you know they thought that they would uh, like uh, they would say that you know long hair is decadent. And, oh. You know, and you know they would attack uh, people who had uh, ties on, for example, and cut their ties. So uh, it was uh, like Iran in the 1980s went through some of its darkest uh, chapters in, uh, in in its history. You know. Mm. Right. And because both the government was radical and the opposition was radical. And as you know, that was the time that hundreds of Baha'is were being killed by the Iranian government as right. well. And the government tried to eliminate the Baha'i community in the country. Right. And the, what strikes me about the current repression of specifically of Baha'is in Iran right now is that it went from kind of wholesale slaughtering Baha'is by the hundreds and hanging them and uh, dismantling their organizations to a much more insidious method of subjugating Baha'is. On the surface, it may not sound like much, but it runs from birth certificates and marriage certificates and death certificates sure. and where you're where you're buried um, government jobs stores being open on Baha'i holy days or not um, uh, on so many different levels but most specifically and most importantly in education can you fill our listeners in for those who haven't heard about the situation of education of Baha'is in Iran and why that's so important sure uh, I think in the beginning of the revolution, uh, the Iranian government, or at least some people within the Iranian government, thought that they could just destroy the Baha'i community by killing them. And the only, I mean, there were only reasons that they did not do it was because of the clever reaction of the Baha'is in Iran and also the Baha'is all around the world to this uh, mass murder of the Baha'is in the beginning of the revolution in the early 1980s, that in Iran they did not give any uh, excuse to the uh, government to kill them. There was a peaceful resistance against the government and also the Baha'i community outside of Iran raised awareness about the situation of the Baha'is and make the government of Iran really pay for its human rights abuses inside the country. And, you know, the Iranian government uh, coming from a very uh, business-minded, bazaari uh, type of, they, on a cost-benefit analysis, they realized that it's better to 
suppress the hive and kill them, and it was better for business to suppress them. So from late 1980s, they adopted a new policy of uh, suppressing the progress of the Baha'i community in Iran through two uh, main ways, through uh, economic suppression and educational suppression. So in terms of economy, they put a lot of pressure, and they're still putting a lot of pressure on Baha'i businesses, and they deny Baha'is of many economic opportunities. And in terms of education, they have denied the Baha'i youth since the beginning of the revolution, since the cultural, so-called cultural revolution in the beginning of the 80s of higher education. So Baha'is in Iran cannot teach or study in Iranian universities. And that's, uh, you know, that is still uh, is going on, and it's not uh, something that's official. So Iran does; not, it's not like Nazi Germany that has a law that deprives the Baha'is of a higher education. But when someone goes to register for uh, a university in Iran, they have to write down their religion, and there are only four recognized religions in Iran, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, and Zoroastrianism. And when they write the Baha'i faith as their religion, there is nowhere to put Baha'i faith as their religion. And when they put it, the uh, reply comes back saying that, you know, you have, there are some, um, how can I say, abnormalities in your case, and you cannot attend the university. And that is true about thousands of young Baha'is who wanted to go to university in Iran. I I think of it as a really, again, I use this word insidious uh, subjugation. We think about there's been 30 years where Baha'is, the largest religious minority in Iran, are no longer doctors, they're no longer lawyers, they're no longer architects, they're no longer getting advanced degrees for the most part, uh, except recently, and we'll get to that. And what a, what a horrific way to, to suppress um, economically a whole culture, um, as uh, well as taking away something that you had mentioned earlier, Baha'i's prize above all things, universal education. And education is so strongly encouraged in the Baha'i faith. It's, it's, um, uh, it, it really is a, a, a stab in the heart to take away uh, education. And it costs the whole society. It's not only the Baha'i community that suffers. When you, I mean, uh, you asked me about if uh, I know, if I know Baha'is in uh, different parts of the world, I've, I know so many brilliant uh, Baha'i engineers, architects, doctors, business people, actors, America, actors, exactly, Uh, artists in America, in Canada, all around the world. And they would love to go back to Iran and they would love to be able to contribute to uh, the Iranian society. So the Iranian government, by denying the Baha'is of educational and economic opportunities is not only uh, hurting the Baha'i community, but worse than that, I think it's hurting the 
Iranian people. A Baha'i doctor who is practicing in Los Angeles now could be helping many Iranian cancer patients who are suffering in Iran. Right. Baha'i uh, business people, they could. And, you know, the Iranian government is so shameless that sometimes they even ask Baha'i uh, professionals to come to Iran and work with the Iranian government. Hmm. And, you know, and but conceal their religious beliefs. I was talking to a Baha'i economist, a very prominent Baha'i economist recently, and uh, his expertise is, uh, expertise is in development, economic development. And he was saying that he was approached by the Iranian government saying that, please come to the country and, you know, uh, help us develop the Iranian economy. But... Please don't talk about your religion. And mm. that is something that he did not want to do. And that that icon uh, of architecture in, in Tehran, that kind of arch thing, I don't, I don't know what it's called. I just learned recently that that was actually uh, designed yeah. by a Baha'i. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, something that was uh, basically when you enter the city of Tehran, the capital, you see the Freedom Monument, and that was designed by a Baha'i in 1971. Yeah, someone who is still... And I love how ironic it's called the Freedom Monument. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. your uh, your first uh, film uh, about this, To Light a Candle, was about the, uh, the Baha'i Institute of Higher Education, which for those who don't know is uh, kind of an, we'll call it an underground university where yes. Baha'is are trying to get their degrees by meeting in secret, uh, covertly studying together, uh, secret cabal meetings of Baha'is in basements and garages trying to learn chemistry or poetry. And, yeah. um, and then it's kind of moved a little bit more to being an online university. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, your experience with the BIHE uh, and then move into the next film, uh, about the murals and the art, but I just did a two-part question. That wasn't really fair. Let's start with the BIHE, and then we'll get to sure. your next film. Uh, you know, when uh, when I came out of prison in 2009, uh, and I was sentenced in absentia to 13 and a half years, and I knew that I was bailed out and I was outside of Iran, and I knew that I could not go back to Iran for a while, I decided to do many things that I wanted to do in Iran, but I could not. And one of them was to make a film about the situation of the Baha'is. Mm. And when I researched more and more about the Baha'is, I realized that the film that I have to do should not be a tragic film, should not be a sad film, even though so uh, there are many tragic stories and even though there are so many you know losses and uh, dramatic stories i thought i sh the film should reflect this forward looking and optimistic view of the bahai community and when i came across the story of bihe bahai institute of higher education i realized that i have found my subject mm. Baha'i Institute of Higher Education, I think it's an education is an educational miracle. It started in mid 1980s, as you said, as a response of the Baha'i community in Iran to the denial of education to its youth. 
when Baha'i teachers were kicked out of Iranian universities, when Baha'i students were kicked out of universities and knew that they could not go to school for a while, they decided to create their own underground universities. So each Baha'i house in Iran became part of the part of the virtual campus for this uh, Baha'i Institute of Higher Education. And in the beginning, they had they were studying by correspondence, so they had these couriers who were taking educational material from one city to another, and they were uh, in touch by fax and by mail, etc. And then with the advent of the internet, they started to be in touch uh, with other people in Iran and also outside of Iran through the internet. And what is very important here is that the certificates that are given by BIHE, in practice, in the beginning, was not worth even the paper it was printed on. Mm. Uh, This is an unofficial university. It is not. It was not recognized by any university around the world. It was not recognized by any uh, educational uh, institution inside Iran. But people were studying. They were studying really hard, according to people who've gone to BIHE. Some of their BIHE courses were even harder than what they studied later on in Berkeley or Harvard or. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stanford. I heard that from many. I heard that from many people that I interviewed and in that are graduates of the BIHE that they would come to the United States and, you know, go to UC Santa Cruz and take a course and say it was much harder doing it in a basement or online in Tehran secretly in the and uh, much more demanding courses. And I think that is why when uh, in the late uh, 1990s, when some. Uh, university administrators and professors in the West, they saw the level of education of BIHE graduates. They started to accept these unofficial graduates of this, of this unofficial university. So at the moment, there are almost 100 universities, prominent universities around the world who accept uh, BIHE graduates. And I think that's a, that's an amazing achievement for an underground university mm. that, you know, started with nothing, with, uh, you know, in people's kitchens. You know, they had to study, as you said, uh, chemistry in their kitchen. You know, they had to mm-hmm. study architecture without having any kind of facilities, you know. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is a miracle of education. And you have a new film coming out. I'd like to hear about that. I know all I know about it is it involves this campaign that you were behind um, having all this cool wall art and murals around the world. I've seen pictures of them in Brazil and in uh, Harlem and many other places. Uh, I'd love to hear about it. Sure. So when I uh, made um, To Light a Candle in 2013, and then we had that event together in L.A. in early 2015 to show the film, and then we had this event uh, celebrating the 
uh, campaign around that film, which was shown in around uh, 200 countries, uh, 200, sorry, 200 cities around the world. Then uh, I thought uh, there ha we have to keep that momentum going and we have to somehow reinvent the campaign. And we were thinking about different ways to go forward. And, you know, with film, you can do a lot, but I think uh, there, there are still certain things that you cannot do with film, especially uh, you do not see the reaction of people. You cannot have that much discourse with the public mm. uh, by the film uh, itself. There has to be some sort of campaign around it. So when we were thinking about uh, different ways to do it, we thought of street art and to have a multi-tiered campaign using street art and using videos made about those street arts to document this, this, this different levels of discourse that we have as the campaign with the artists who are not Baha'is about the situation of the Baha'is in Iran the discourse that the artists have with the general public, with passersby about the subject, and the reaction of people on the street to this subject. So we decided to uh, create these works of art, and we were supported by many people within the Baha'i community to create these amazing walls with amazing artists from uh, South Africa, to Australia, to India, to the UK, to Brazil, to uh, different cities in the US. And we, we, realized, we, we realized that we were doing something different. But then again, we thought that, you know, there should be another twist in the campaign. And how can we even be more effective? Hmm. And when we looked at the, uh, the dialogue that the Iranian people in the diaspora and the Iranian Baha'i community and the Baha'is have with different people in the U.S., we realized that there are some potentials within the African-American community ah. that have not been used by uh, the Baha'i community and us as people who care about the human rights, because what the Baha'is of Iran are going through now is very similar to what the African-American community went through up to 40 years ago. Yeah, through the Jim Crow and, years, decades. Exactly. Yeah. In terms of education, denial of education, in terms of uh, suppression of the African-American talent, so yeah. we, we decided to have a more concentrated uh, campaign in Harlem as one of the bastions of African-American culture and had about 19 walls in uh, Harlem and we created uh, 19 murals in Harlem and we became basically kind of a Harlem phenomenon and, you know, the walls are still there. Oh, uh, great. The, we had documented the uh, campaign uh, and the walls in different videos and 
this film, uh, Changing the World One Wall at a Time, which is called. Yes. Basically, the. Uh, That's the title, Changing the World One Wall at a Time. Okay. Time. It is basically the diary of this uh, campaign from the beginning to uh, last year. And were any of the artists Baha'is and were any of the Baha'i artists uh, Iranian? Uh, we had one half Iranian artist. Okay. Half American Iranian artist. And no, we had one Iranian artist as well. So basically, one and a half Iranian. One and a half. Okay. But Good. no Baha'i artist. No Baha'i artist. And we thought, you know, it, there's, uh, it would be more interesting. I mean, if we welcome if there's a, a great Baha'i uh, street artist who wants to contribute to sure. uh, the campaign. But no, the main criteria for the uh, for choosing the artist was to. Uh, to be a great artist. And the people that we've worked with, uh, they are some of the most prominent uh, people in street art and they are international artists, especially the people we worked in the US because we worked with a curator uh, in New York uh, from an organization called uh, Street Art Anarchy. And mm -hmm. they are experts. I love that there's an organization that has the word anarchy in the title because that yeah, defeats yeah. the purpose of being an organization. But they're great uh, at what they do. No, that's great. They supported this and, and helped out. Yeah. Uh, amazing. So, Maziar, you're kind of an activist-journalist combination. Um, yeah. Do people have a reaction to that? Because off, I know a lot of people feel like journalists need to be impartial. Uh, and don't and shouldn't take a stand, but simply report the news. So, how do you define that? How do you justify that for yourself? It's 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 a bit difficult, you know. I was a very private person up to the time I was arrested in Iran, and even when in 2005, when I was working in Iraq, and the Canadian television asked me to make a film about my experience, I didn't even use my own voice to narrate the film because mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I should not be important. The story should be important. But when I came out of prison, as a result of a campaign, I realized that, you know, that was, you know, lost. You know, every, uh, in order to get me released, my employers at Newsweek, they had to publicize every aspect of my life, you know, about the tragedies in my family, about my mother, about the fact that my wife was pregnant, and mm. all that was everyone and knew everything. It was so. I thought, you know, so that's I, that's I, interesting. Sorry to to jump yeah, in here, but that's interesting that um, it was a result of a campaign that got you out of prison, and exactly. in a way, you realized yeah. the importance of campaigns. Exactly. And I think that was, yeah, maybe I forgot to mention that. That's well, That was one of the main reasons that really motivated me to have this campaign and other campaigns that we have. We have another campaign called Journalism is Not a Crime, which uh, people can see on journalismisnotacrime.com and mm. we campaign on behalf of journalists in Iran and other countries as well. So, Yes, that was one of the reasons that I realized the 
power-up campaigns. So I realized that I do not belong to myself anymore. And, you know, I have this 15 minute, uh, minutes of fame that I should use for something more meaningful. So that's why I think I've changed the way that I practice as a journalist. And, you know, uh, I still try to do the more traditional uh, journalism in, uh, in the website we have, iranwire.com. Okay. But I think uh, a lot of my time is spent on uh, campaigning and talking about and advocacy and advocating the truth. And also I think journalism has changed, especially in recent years, and especially, I think, in America, uh, it's very difficult to be neutral because there's so uh, there's so much injustice going on. And you, whenever you talk about the truth, you are advocating something. You are becoming an activist, mm-hmm. whether you want it or not. And, you know, the way that you see that uh, Washington Post and New York Times are reporting and the way that they are covering different issues in the country now. Yeah. That is very similar to what some activists are doing. Well, it's, and, it's so and, funny that um, scientists have exactly. just become and activists science, well, yeah, and yeah. science reporters um, and Bill Nye, the science guy, people who are yeah. simply reporting on the science of the age on climate change exactly. um, have de- become de facto activists for simply telling the truth. Yes, because, you know, there are so many people who are insisting on lies and it's the same situation in Iran. So when I make a film about the Holocaust, for example, and talk about Holocaust denial by Iranian supreme leader, I don't think that I am an activist, but because, and you know that I am doing something that I would not do as a journalist, but because there is so much wrong on the other side that there. Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei is so wrong in terms of denying the Holocaust and being anti-Semitic. But the very fact that I'm exposing his uh, faults, I become an activist. So I think uh, it's just something that I think I've become an activist, not really by choice, but by default in a way. Well, I'd love to just get a little more personal uh, uh, with you, Maziar. Yeah. You, it's not often that one uh, gets the opportunity to speak to someone who was in prison and tortured for attempting to tell the truth, attempting to yeah. tell stories, attempting to be a journalist. Um, what can – I know you've spoken about this uh, topic a great deal – but I would just love to hear uh, on a personal level, what did yeah. you take away from that experience? You didn't know if you were going to be killed. You were tortured. You were humiliated. Um, you were tortured in many different ways, uh, psychologically and physically and emotionally. Um, what did it do to you and what? Di- how did it transform you? 
it's very difficult to say how did it change me it's not only one way and sometimes when i do certain things uh, these days and i look at the reason why uh, it goes back to that experience but i think uh what uh it's really i think the main uh takeaway from that four months uh uh, imprisonment and especially like 107 days of solitary confinement and constant uh, threat of death and torture, physical, psychological, was to uh, was to have a more positive outlook at life, mm-hmm. and you know the power of being positive and the power of humor, for example, mm. that, you know, without being positive and without looking at different situations with a sense of humor, you're dead. Ah. And I think many people, when I came out of prison after two, three months, after I wrote a very long article for Newsweek and when I did many interviews with different uh, broadcasters and media outlets about the experience, they they were asking me, so why don't you look as affected as many other people? And, and I would say, because, you know, I'm talking about it, because right. I'm just expressing my opinion. So I think uh, I cannot say that I'm not affected and I'm not traumatized, but I think I am maybe less traumatized by the experience because I talk about it so much and because I have tried to sublimate all the uh, negative ideas and negative energy that I've have had into something positive like this campaign for example uh, the you know education is not a crime campaign because it would be very easy to start a campaign insulting the Iranian government and it would be you know justified. Right. The Iranian government has to be insulted because they're doing something totally wrong. But instead, I thought it would be much more interesting to be more productive and create and, you know, produce these amazing works of art as uh, as an answer to what the Iranian government. So I think it's made me a better person. The experience of prison, prison has made me a better person because I've become more productive and mm-hmm. more positive in my outlook at life and less cynical. Right. Yeah, cynicism the- is such a trap that can hold uh-huh. you back from doing anything because it's you just say, oh, it doesn't matter. And you can just kind of sit in your like little pool of bile and, and criticize things and, and not exactly. believe that anything can change. And that yeah, doesn't do really, the world any good. Yeah, that's the scourge of our age that many people, especially young people, they are cynical for uh, for very wrong reasons. And, you know, young people should not be really cynical. I think when you're older, you can be, it's justified that you're cynical. But I think when you're young, you should not be cynical. You have to have a more uh, positive outlook. But I think that cynicism is also the answer that many young people have to 
all the laws that surround them and mm. the way that they look at uh, the world is with cynicism and and, but cynicism, unfortunately, can result in lack of action and yeah. it's kind of very lethargic. Stultifying. Uh, exactly, that that you have towards life. But it's made me, I think, uh, that intense uh, experience really made me uh, more productive. And as I said, like, I think I'm a relatively better person. Wow, that's that's an incredible transformation to go through that experience and be more optimistic, more positive, more filled with humor, more gratitude at being alive. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Realizing life is is just such a precious gift. Exactly. Uh, and you know that's there. You have very limited time, and you have very limited energy, and yeah. Uh, what advice do you have to other activists or journalists that might be listening? It's difficult to say advice because every situation is different from the other ones. But I think it's very important to do your research about what, you, what you're doing, to understand the situation that you're campaigning about, mm. find the weak points in the situation and try to exploit them. I see many people waste their goodwill and good energy on things that they don't know. Some people I see they campaign about causes that they have no idea what are they talking about. And as a result, it can be satisfying, but it's futile at the end of the day. Mm. So I think uh, the most important thing is to understand the uh, situation. Like when we are talking about the uh, situation of the Baha'is in Iran and why is it important, you know, it's because of the fact that we, our organization, we know the situation. We are either, you know, people who are experts on Iran, people who yeah. are of experts on Baha'i. So we know the situation and we can uh, base our campaign on that knowledge. Mm. Mm. But if I start campaigning about something in Myanmar or something in South Africa without really knowing and understanding and knowing how to campaign, just, you know, it helps me and, you know, it satisfied me, I, I think that would that's wrong. So I think for everyone, it's very important just to read, just to learn about the situation and then try to be as effective as possible and be as focused as possible as well. Mm. Uh, like you said yourself, before imprisonment, you were scattered and were involved in 20, 40 different activities. And now you have really focused on the three or four things that you're the most passionate about. Yeah. So you talked about the strengths of Baha'is and what you loved about Baha'is earlier uh, and their commitment to honesty and, and to education. And um, what what can Baha'is, what do Baha'is need to learn? Uh, what advice would you have uh, for the Baha'is both inside and outside of Iran? What do Baha'is need to get better at? 
I think Baha'is, I think what we did in Harlem, and I think uh, that's what uh, many Baha'is appreciated that as well, was that to find new allies, to try to venture out of the traditional alliances that they have had. And the great thing about the Baha'i community is that when you talk to different people within the Baha'i community, they also realize that they have to improve, that they have to find new horizons, and they have to uh, find new challenges for the uh, Baha'i community. I think it's just that uh, sometimes some people within the Baha'i community, and you know, it's natural as well because people have a certain amount of time and they have work, they have family, so they do not look for challenges all the time. But I think the Baha'is uh, as a community, it will be good to uh, try to find new alliances and hmm. with different groups like, you know, African-American community, uh, other communities around the world, and find new uh, ways to express themselves. And the other thing about the Baha'i community is that sometimes with some Baha'i uh, members, I think that they are too conservative in the way that they approach uh, campaigns or art. I think it can be a little bit, they can be a little bit more daring at times. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, but the great thing, is, again, is that when, whenever I talk to people who are uh, prominent members of the Baha'i uh, community, uh, they agree that, yes, the Baha'is should be a little bit more adventurous and they should... Uh, take more risks. Take more risks, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say be less boring sometimes. <laughs> be less boring. <laughs> Okay, that sounds good. Message to Baha'is from Maziar Bahari. Be less boring. Yeah. <laughs> Not all of, of course, but some, yeah. Sure. Um, and uh, l let me just end with this. Um, what message do you have to the people of Iran? What message? Oh, my God. I mean, I think that... Uh, the best message to the Iranian people is not to have a message and just uh, to, but for all people all around the world is just to question everything. And, you know, whenever people ask me for any kind of advice, uh, my advice is to question whatever I, I say or other people say, I think, because if you don't question things, if you... Uh, don't be curious about things if you don't look at uh, different situations with curiosity and try to find to uh, understand the truth behind what is being said hmm. that leads to tyranny and that leads to the situation that we have in Iran so I think so I, basically I think the um the Baha'i uh, fundamental principle of the Baha'i faith, the independent investigation of truth, to find the truth out for oneself, is is the advice that you would give to the Iranian people. Yeah, I guess so. Without knowing that, that's one of the. <laughs> there you go. 
Yeah, There's something so. else to love about well, Baha'is. I'm a closeted Baha'i. Who else? You're yeah. a closet Baha'i. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to get you out of that closet, Maziar. I, I swear All to God. Right. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, well, this has you. been a beautiful conversation. I've learned so thank much. Um, what can you tell us about the release of the new film, Changing the World One Wall at a Time? Changing the World One Wall at a Time will be released uh, sometime in May. It will be shown in Harlem Film Festival on mm-hmm. May 5th, I believe. Yes, on May 5th in Great. New York City. And then we will show it in different cities in the U.S. In L.A., we show it in June and yeah, and we'll show it like to light a candle in different cities around the world. So if any of your listeners are interested in the campaign, they can go to educationisnotacrime.me or .com or visit us at our uh, Facebook page and ask us questions. And if they would like to be involved in the campaign, they can just send us uh, emails or send us Facebook messages, tweet us, and then we can send them uh, answers on how to get involved in the campaign. Great. And can people set up screenings in their in their area as well? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. And we are going to be uh, in touch with Baha'i communities in different parts of the world in order to have screenings and we can have new murals in different parts of the world and also some of our some of the artists involved in the campaign and people you see in the film they are in different parts and you can invite them to your screening Wonderful. so yeah i think it will be the beginning of a new phase of the campaign yeah fantastic mazir is such a sincere pleasure thank you for taking this time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk thank to our you. listeners thank you so much take care Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iBlog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.